Hi, good morning. Have a seat, please. And while you do, open your Bibles or navigate on your devices to Matthew chapter 5. There's a couple here this morning whose air conditioning went out and then their refrigerator went out, so I expect our air conditioning to fail any second now. Not saying that they're jinxed or anything, but uh, it's very possible. Our text is Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. We're studying through the gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The topic this morning, Jesus retreated from the multitudes. He went up on a mountain and he taught his closest disciples the virtues of the kingdom of heaven. The title of our message, he'll be teaching on the mountain when he comes. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we pray that your word would enrich our lives, that it would touch our hearts in a very special way, that we would see Jesus uh, glorified, lifted up in it. I pray, Lord, that if there are folks here that are not saved, they've never been born again, that today you would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment that's coming, that they would understand that though they have no righteousness of their own, you have provided them righteousness through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, and today would be their day of salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, those of us who are born again, we would see what we are to be like as uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that we would glory in it, and that we would wonder at it, that it would be a marvel to us. Help us, Lord, word by word and verse by verse, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name, and those who agree, said, amen. Tour guides got together, this is real, and they came up with the following titles and characteristics of citizens from the following countries. These are not my ideas. I don't want to get stoned afterwards, but this is something uh, that you can read about. Tour guides. Uh, First of all, the ugly American. You've heard that term before, right? The ugly American. Uh, Super patriotic, obese, loud, clueless about local culture and language, but a good tipper. So that's how tour guides see Americans. The arrogant French, unabashed snobs, easily put on the defensive about their country of origin, cheap. The rude Russian, obsessed with luxury, boastful, and the men are borderline obscene. This is my favorite, the brassy Brit, worst dressed of the lot, anxious to drink to excess and acquire brain-numbing sunburn. The merry Australian, Vegemite in the backpack. Have you ever, have you ever eaten Vegemite? Don't. Uh, life of the party, always down for a hike or surf, possible chip on the shoulder. And then finally, the calm Canadian, maple leaf tattoo, keen to debunk perception that Canada is a frigid wasteland and the de facto colony of America, incredibly polite to a fault. I don't know how true those are, obviously they're exaggerations, but for a moment, let's forget about our own countries of origin and consider the country we are all headed to as believers in Jesus Christ. As citizens of heaven, just passing through the earth to eternity, do we have certain characteristics? Why yes, yes we do. They are revealed to us by Jesus in what is commonly called his Sermon on the Mount. As the king teaches this kingdom manifesto, he reveals to us the traits each and every citizen of heaven is to manifest 
uh, while on the earth. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the teaching of the king's manifesto has been given to you. And number two, the traits of the kingdom are to be manifested by you. So verses one and two, let's look at the teaching of the king's manifesto as it, as it is introduced to us. Now, a manifesto is a published or a verbal declaration of the principles and goals, especially of a political party or a government. It's not a word we use every day, so allow me to suggest something else, another illustration that might help it make more sense to us. Whether your politics are conservative or liberal, you're probably familiar with the movement in our country to return to the principles and virtues set out by the founding fathers in the Constitution of the United States. The argument is that we have gotten away from what it means to be an American. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount sets forth the principles and virtues of the kingdom of heaven. As he describes the traits of a citizen of the kingdom, we can determine if we have gotten away from what it means to be a Christian. And so we begin in verse one, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Jesus had set up headquarters, you'll remember, in Capernaum in the region of Galilee. He'd been teaching in the synagogues, preaching out in the open, and healing everyone of everything, whether the causes were physical or supernatural or some combination of the two. He retreated up a mountain from the multitudes who were following him, and he took a seat. Now, that's significant because this is the posture a rabbi assumed when he was about to teach his closest disciples. They did things just the opposite of our culture, where usually the person teaching stands and everyone else sits. In their culture, when the teacher sat, it was time for everybody to stand and to listen because he was going to deliver his lesson. Now, Jesus had not yet chosen his apostles, so we can assume that this group of disciples included them, but it was larger than just the 12. And we must also assume that many from the multitude climbed the mountain and heard these words as well. They heard the words, but the words were not meant for them. They were meant for disciples. Only someone who is a believer can manifest the traits that we're going to talk about. They require the supernatural enabling of God the Holy Spirit. You must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You must be born again to manifest these traits. They are not a prescription for becoming righteous. They are a description of those who have been declared righteous by God. A lot of people look at the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes here, these first blessings, and they say, oh, everyone should adopt these as principles for living and the world would be a better place. That's true, except that only a Christian can live out these principles. Only someone who is born again. This was not a prescription. Jesus didn't say, do these things and you will earn righteousness before God. No, they are a description of how righteous people act, those who have been declared righteous by God, because the Bible says that all of our own righteousness is no better than filthy rags before God. And we must at the cross of Jesus Christ, receive his righteousness as a gift as he takes upon himself our sins. Otherwise, we will never be saved. One commentator called these words effective words of grace, meaning that they are the effective cause of what they teach. As we like to put it, they are God's word 
uh, as God's word, they are God's enabling to those who are born again. We believe that God's word is his enabling. When he speaks his word, it has the power to accomplish what he says it will accomplish. And so when he commands us or describes us, it's not something that we hope we can do. It's something that we can do in dependence upon God. So verse two, it says, then he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now, the particular use of this word taught, especially its verb tense, indicates this was a typical teaching Jesus repeatedly gave. Yes, there was a day in which he gave the Sermon on the Mount, but he repeated it in part or in full as he went about his teaching and preaching ministry. These next three chapters are the very heart of Jesus' teaching on being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is going to be a real future 1,000-year reign by Jesus over the earth. But it is also true to say that we are citizens of his kingdom right now. Think of it as the government of our lives by God. Wherever we are, in whatever earthly kingdom, at whatever time in history, we are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are to be governed in that place by God. Now, we're going to see what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like in just a moment, but before we do, we need to be sure we're in the group of disciples and not just in the multitude that is following. Have you been born again? Does God the Holy Spirit live within you? Because if you have not, and if he does not, you cannot exhibit any of the traits we are going to discuss. It is impossible because they are all produced by the grace of God operating in the heart's of believers. A few verses earlier, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you repent and believe, you leave the multitude and join the disciples. Make sure you've done that before you leave this place this morning. Now, verses three through 12, the traits of the kingdom are to be manifested by you. Let's say you are a disciple in the broad sense that you believe in Jesus and are born again. It's important we get started in our understanding of these traits on the right foot. These traits, commonly called the Beatitudes, are things we already possess. They are part of the new nature we received when we were saved. At the same time, we should aspire to grow in these traits. And as I suggested earlier, we can, by self-examination, sometimes realize we have gotten away from what it means to be a Christian and want to get back to them. Under the power of the Word of God, uh, the Holy Spirit using it in your life, we can read a section of Scripture and He can prick our conscience and say, ooh, I, I'm not really yielding to the Lord in that area. I'm not really living up to that, though I could and should as a Christian. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. These are the Lord's description of every single believer. This is what we are all to be like by his enabling grace. It isn't a description of certain super saints. It is the everyday expectation of the average Christian. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what citizens of the kingdom are like. All of us are to manifest all of these characteristics, unlike the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in which we each have differing gifts, each one of these traits is to be in our lives. And so let's get started in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is not so easily translated. It means something like, oh, how happy and to be envied are you. 
Get that said in your mind right from the start. These traits, which on the surface from the world's perspective seem totally unenviable, are characteristics of those who are to be envied, who are happy in the truest spiritual sense of the word. I mean, there's not too many seminars out there uh, or sales talks about being poor and meek uh, and, you know, all these various things, mourning and all. These are not things the world values, but Jesus, before he tells you to do anything, he says, oh, how happy and how enviable it is for you as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven to walk in these traits. Starting his talk with this word puts us on notice that it is our Lord's intention to build us up, to give our lives meaning and purpose, to help us to discover why we were put on this planet in the first place. Beyond all that, this word blessed has a future component too. We're not only blessed now, we will be blessed in eternity uh, looking back upon the time we spent here preparing for it. Now, the first trait is to be poor in spirit. There are many words translated into English by the single word poor. This word is the most extreme word in uh, the Greek language. It was used of a beggar who had absolutely nothing. Now, from here, commentators launch out in a thousand different directions in their application and understanding of the Beatitudes, and many of them are profitable for spiritual growth. There isn't any one way to uh, kind of attack this. I want to do something slightly different. I want to see how our Lord, Jesus Christ, as the foremost citizen of the kingdom of heaven, manifested each of these traits as a man. True, Jesus was and is God. He was the God-man. But he was and is our example and our model, and therefore he must, as a man on the earth, exhibit and example these very traits he calls upon his disciples to manifest. Thinking back a few verses, Jesus came forward to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John said, whoa, wait a minute, time out, hold your horses. I should be baptized by you. He recognized that Jesus was absolutely unique, the sinless son of God, fully God and fully human. But Jesus says, no, I, I'm going to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness so that I can identify with the people I've come to save, the human race, and be their example and be their model. And so Jesus, living as a man, while he's on the earth, fully God, but choosing to set aside the prerogatives of his deity is the example to us of the chief citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he was certainly not poor in spirit the way we are. He was sinless. He was perfect. But he made himself that way in order to show us kingdom living. So how can it be said that Jesus was poor in spirit? Well, remember what we said about this word poor. It was used of a beggar. Now, what does a beggar do? A beggar begs, or we would say a beggar asks and expects to receive. Jesus can be described as poor in spirit because as a man, he set aside his own will and always asked his father in heaven what he was to say, where he was to go, what he was to do. Jesus said in John chapter 5, by myself, I can do nothing. Not some things, not a few things, nothing. And then he said in John chapter 12, the words I speak are not my own. The Father has told me what to say. 
Without exaggerating, we would look at Jesus and say that he only said, he only did, he only went where the Father sent him. Always asking and being directed by our Heavenly Father. And so you see the Lord, fully God yet fully man, praying, seeking his Father's will and permission. He modeled for us total dependence upon God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, his famous line, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus set aside his own will and his own prerogative, his own spirit, as it were, to be subordinate to God, to be poor in spirit and to be led. Jesus wasn't poor in spirit because he was somehow deficient, but because he was totally dependent. He totally, 100% submitted himself to his Father and followed the Holy Spirit. Am I totally dependent upon God? I started that way. We all did when we got saved. You especially remember this if you got saved later in life when you realized that you were a sinner with no hope of salvation. There was nothing you could do, you could ever do to earn any status with God because of the weight of your sin. And you threw yourself on the mercy of the cross knowing that if you were going to be saved, you were 100% dependent on the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we all start off absolutely poor in spirit, totally dependent upon God. It was recognition of total spiritual poverty and dependence upon God to save us that gained us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, since I was once thus submitted and surrendered, I can be again, or at least I can recognize when I might have abandoned this trait to follow my own leadings, and I can then repent and return to doing God's will. Only then, totally dependent upon my God and Savior, will I be truly and wonderfully blessed. I will appreciate the kingdom of heaven because wherever I am on earth, I am being ruled by God. Now, you see, this is a a good example, just again, to see each of these traits. These are traits that you already possess, but that we can get away from as we walk through this world, as we get soiled with the sin and the darkness of this world, and they are traits that we need to grow in. No one of us is ever going to be able to say, I am 100% submitted to God. I only do what God tells me to do and I only say what God tells me to say. But that shouldn't discourage us. We should understand that day by day, he is conforming us to the image of Christ. We're becoming more and more like that. And when God reveals to us that there are areas of our life that we are not submitted in, then we want to repent of those and walk with the Lord Look at all that God accomplished through the life of Jesus Christ. I submit to you it was the greatest life that was ever lived. And yet Jesus said the number one characteristic, the very beginning of it, is to be poor in spirit and to be led by God and do only what God wants you to do when he wants you to do it with the words he wants you to speak. And so these are tremendous principles for us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, verse four. The particular word for mourn is a very intense word. It described the loud mourning for the dead, the lamentable wailing for the dead. Jesus, we're told in scripture, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He mourned with tears outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He mourned with tears over the plight of the city of Jerusalem. Suffering and sin inspired Jesus to mourn. In his case, having no sin, he mourned for the sin of others and for sin in general. 
Do I mourn over sin? Well, I did when I first got saved. I mourned over my own sin. I realized how heinous it was, how evil it was, how it destroyed my life and the lives of others. Do I mourn still? Well, that's a question we must each answer for ourselves, but I'd say for most of us, most of the time, the answer is not so much. I'm not saying that we always ignore sin or that we, you know, we slough it off, but I'll just throw this out. I say this to myself. When was the last time I was overcome with the understanding that I had sinned and, and I mourned the way I mourned when I was first aware of my sin? Sin hasn't gotten any nicer. Sin hasn't gotten any cleaner. If anything, it's worse because now I sin against the knowledge of the holiness of the Son of God. And so I need to return to a mourning for sin. And since I thus once mourned, I can do it again. And when I do, I'm comforted by God the Holy Spirit that for those sins, Christ died. Oh, how happy and to be envied are we when sin is confessed and we are restored to fellowship with the living God. Then, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, I will mourn over the sin of others. And like my Lord, I will seek to announce to them the spiritual comfort of his forgiveness that is available to them. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Adam Clark wrote the following. He said, our word meek come from the old Anglo-Saxon word meaning a companion or an equal because he who is of a meek or gentle spirit is ever ready to associate with the meanest, the lowest of those who fear God. And so this idea of meekness has to do with identifying with folks that are in trouble, that are lowly, that are kind of at the bottom of the barrel, as it were. Jesus said of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. So up to now, maybe you're still thinking, I'm not too comfortable talking about Jesus being poor in spirit and mourning. But Jesus did say of himself, I am meek. And this is what I'm talking about. He made himself these things in order to show us what he meant. I am meek and lowly in heart. It's from that famous passage in Matthew 11, verse 29, where he talks about uh, his yoke being easy and his burden being light. He lived out meekness by coming to earth from heaven as a man to associate and identify with the lowest of us in order to save us. Even the highest of us would be the lowest. I mean, imagine Jesus, the, uh, the thrice holy son of God, God eternal, becoming a man to identify with the men of the earth. That is meekness. If you don't see that, and uh, I, I think Adrian Rogers used to say, um, if you think meek is being weak, try being meek for a week. Uh, meekness is not weakness. It's a strength. It's a strength of identifying with those that are less in one sense to help them and to save them. The result of his becoming human was that he went to the cross and there he became the savior of all mankind, especially those who believe. They became his spiritual inheritance. I am happy and to be envied when I associate with everyone, especially the needy, to speak to them of a glorious inheritance that could be theirs in heaven. But I must do more than speak about it. I must in some smaller, great way lay down my own life for them the way Jesus did. For that we will have an inheritance awaiting for us in heaven, incorruptible, eternal, wonderful. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Jesus was 100% righteous. You couldn't get any more righteous than Jesus. He was so righteous that as I pointed out, John the Baptist didn't want to baptize him. He knew that it was not a baptism of repentance because Jesus had uh, righteousness that didn't need to repent of anything. But even though he was righteous, Jesus was able to model for us hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A few verses earlier in Matthew, we saw him on the brink of starvation after a 40-day fast tell the devil that man does not live by bread alone. He had a hunger and a thirst for God. Jesus often went without sleep to spend all night in prayer with his father. He denied physical appetites in favor of spiritual ones. As a brand new believer, a lot of us experience this kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't know if you remember this phrase. When I was a young believer, somebody said this to me to encourage me in my daily devotions, my morning devotions. They said, no Bible, no breakfast. And the idea was, if you don't have time to read your Bible, you don't have time for breakfast. And uh, it wasn't a legalistic thing. It wasn't, a, you know, a forcing you. It was a reminder that you are to hunger and thirst after spiritual things. And the truth is, if you don't have time to read your Bible, you don't have time to, read bre- uh, to eat breakfast, and your Bible is going to be more important to you during the day than your Egg McMuffin. A lot more important than your Egg McMuffin. But anyway, uh, do you understand? And so Jesus modeled that. He said, yeah, my appetites are, as a man, are all spiritual appetites. I'll go without food. I'll go without sleep in order to pursue my Father in heaven. You'll never be filled by snacking or gorging yourself on the things of the world anyway. All true satisfaction is spiritual. Oh, how happy and to be envied are you when spiritual appetites take priority. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. As he went about, Jesus was in the business of being merciful. Jesus often heard someone cry out, have mercy on me. Multiple times, just look it up in your concordance. Have mercy on me. Whether it was blind Bartimaeus or someone else, they knew Jesus was in the vicinity and they would shout out, Lord, have mercy on me. And he would. He would heal them. He would save them. He would obtain mercy for them from his father by asking his father what he wanted him to do. When did Jesus ever obtain mercy for himself? Well, I suggest one time was on the cross. While on the cross, Jesus directed us to look at Psalm 22 when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the opening line of Psalm 22. And any Jew at the cross would know that he was making a reference to that psalm. Later in that psalm, we read, when he cried to God, he heard. The father was merciful to the son and would not allow his body to see corruption. He raised him from the dead. Is my first thought to show mercy, remembering that I have received and still receive mercy from God? Is my focus to obtain mercy by asking my father to heal those who are afflicted? It should be as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Among the myriad of things that pure in heart can mean, one is to have an undivided heart or love for God. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with everything you've got. Jesus obviously had an undivided love for God, and he modeled it for us. He also promised to wash and cleanse us in order to present us pure before our Father. 
we shall see God, and when we do, we're gonna be thankful that Jesus has been at work in our lives making us ready for that meeting. Am I happy and to be envied about his preparations in my life? Or do I try to divide my heart? Do I have a divided heart, and am I holding on to other things that really aren't beautiful, that really aren't helpful? These things may not be evil in and of themselves. They might not even be sin. But are they wings or are they weights in terms of my running the race to win the prize? Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus was sent to earth on a peacemaking mission. Men were at war with God, but God sent his only begotten son to make peace with them. It happened on the cross at the height of mankind's hatred. Jesus gave himself so that you and I might know peace with God. How can we resemble that trait? Well, Jesus humbled himself, set aside his deity. We would say he gave up his rights in order to minister God's peace to others. It doesn't mean we must become political pacifists or that we can never exercise our rights as citizens uh, in our earthly nation. It means our first priority ought to be to want to see our situation bring others into peace with God. It means that we recognize there is always something more going on, something spiritual, when there is a conflict. It should be to humble ourselves and let God work through us as his peacemakers. So I'm at work, and I'm having a difficulty at work. My boss is giving me a hard time. Is my first thought, Lord, how do you want to use this conflict so that I can show him and her or others that you are a God that is at peace with mankind and that they need this peace of God? Or is your first thought, where do I file a grievance? Because this just isn't fair. I'm not gonna take this anymore. I'm not saying you can't ever do that. But as a citizen of heaven, we recognize that there's always more going on. There's always, uh, as Paul would say, you wrestle not against flesh and blood. When you, when you start thinking, oh, my boss or my husband or my wife or my children or whatever, you're not wrestling against that person. You're wrestling against some spiritual power and wickedness in high places that is creating that conflict and you want to be the peacemaker. If making peace was the mission of the Son of God, it must be ours as God's sons and daughters. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, being persecuted isn't a trait we are to manifest. It's a result. Live like Jesus lived, manifest these traits, and you will be persecuted, or at least there's a high likelihood of it. It's a promise the Lord himself made to us that we would in the world have these kinds of troubles. Which brings us to Jesus' commentary on being persecuted in verses 11 and 12. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus seemed to think that the kingdom of heaven was in a cosmic conflict with the kingdoms of this world going back some thousands of years. The successive kingdoms of this world, ruled as they were and are by the God of this world, Satan, seemed to be victorious. They persecuted the prophets, they would persecute Jesus, and they will revile and persecute Christians. Oh, how happy and to be envied are you and I if we are thus persecuted. 
For one thing, it is concrete proof you're a citizen of heaven and that the kingdom of heaven is breaking through the kingdom of darkness and gaining ground. And he says, great is your reward in heaven. We need to think more about heaven, especially about who and what is waiting for us there upon our entrance. It's going to be Jesus ready to reward us. I admit it's so hard to think about heaven in one sense because it it seems less real than the material world that we're in. But you and I know that it's more real because this world, this universe, one day God's going to be through with it. He's going to fold it up, the Bible says, as a garment. He's going to wipe it out. He's going to quit holding it together. And it'll be gone in a flash and he will make a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And spiritual things are the things that matter. And so I should be thinking about that day, which for any one of us could come at any moment. Uh, We believe that the rapture of the church could happen at any moment, but you or I could die at any moment. To be absent from our body, to be present with the Lord and to face the Lord at that judgment and, and... want to know that great is our reward in heaven because we are learning about these traits that we already possess and seeking to manifest them more and more to grow in them or in some cases to return to them because we've gotten far from them. Never say you don't care for rewards as if you seem more spiritual. Have you heard that before? People say, well, I don't really care about getting rewards because after all, I'm just going to give them back to Jesus. And, you know, it, it, there's certain, it seems kind of spiritual, like I'm so spiritual I don't really care about rewards. I'll tell you why you should care a lot about rewards. Because, one reason, one reason only, because Jesus delights to give them. He wants to give them to you. And when I stand before the Lord, I, I mean, I don't know, I'm just using this as an example, but I would rather have a trainload of rewards for him to give to me rather than him reach around in his pockets and say, well, I think I've got a ring here somewhere for you, Gene. Uh, that baby dedication, you almost had it there, but no, I'm sorry. You know, It gives the Lord joy to reward you. Do, do you want to bring joy to the Lord? Of course you do. All of us want to give back to the Lord. And so often we think, oh, what can I give the Lord for all that he's done for me? He says, I want to reward you. Earn some rewards so that I can have the joy of giving you rewards. God loves to give, does he not? He's the God of grace. Salvation is a gift of grace, freely given, undeserved, unmerited. He wants to give. So put yourself in a position to receive. Serve him. Make sure he has a bushel full of rewards for you so that his joy will be full. Amen?